this point to please turn back with me to that portion of scripture we've read together in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 11, and reading, or looking rather, at the portion starting at verse 10. Okay, so if you have ever travelled north of here up to to Scotland and uh, up to Inverness, then if you've been to Inverness, you will have noticed the sort of massive bridge uh, that connects Inverness to what is called the Black Isle. Okay, this is this massive bridge is called the Keswick Bridge. Now, I remember as a child growing up. Uh, in Inverness, that when that was being built, you know, when the, the Keswick Bridge was being built, as you can imagine in a wee sort of town like Inverness, it was the top of the town. Everyone was mumbling about the Keswick Bridge, so much so that for the first few weeks after it was opened, what people used to do, people used to hike up to the bridge uh, to sort of stand in the middle of it and get the view from it. You know, people used to walk up, up into the bridge, to stand in the middle of it, yet to sort of get a, a, I suppose a sense of the scale, you know, a sense of the, the, the size of the bridge, but also to take in this new view that the bridge afforded of Inverness on one side and of the Black Isle on the other. Okay? And you see that bridge? The Keswick Bridge. That's where we're standing this evening. Because you see, this book we're looking at, the, the book of Genesis, in some ways it really comes in two parts. Okay? Now, we've got the, the first part of Genesis, from, from chapter 1 to chapter 11, that we looked at a few months ago. And then we've got the second part, which we are just about to sort of launch into from chapter 12 onwards. And so I guess... What you could say is that this rather long genealogical section that we've got here in chapter 11, this is the hinge, isn't it? It's the sort of connecting point. This is the bridge between the two parts of Genesis. Now, before we inspect the section any more closely, we should perhaps, I think, consider what the second part of Genesis is all about. If we are going to have a sermon series on the second part of Genesis, what should we expect to see? Okay, what happens from, from chapter 12 onwards? Well, I, I, here's a memory test for you. I know that it's been a, a, quite a while since we were in Genesis. Can you remember what was meant by the term Toledot? Remember what the Toledot is? The Toledot was that phrase in Genesis that is found 11 times. There's a lot of chapters in Genesis, but 11 times in Genesis you will get this phrase, which is called the Toledot. Now, it's the phrase that says, either it says, these are the generations of, or it says, this is the account of, and it's a phrase that is found 11 times, and it is used, get this, it is a phrase that is used to narrow down the focus of Genesis, to a particular line or a particular sort of family. Now, how many times did I say there was the Toledot? Eleven? In all these chapters of Genesis. Now have a look in front of you. 
Look at section. Have you got your Bibles open? What do you see? You've got it twice. There's only 11 of them in the whole of Genesis. And this section here, we've got two. Look, verse 10, it says, this is the account of Shem. Then verse 27, this is the account of Terah. So what, what, what does that mean? What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that this second part of Genesis that we are just about to launch into, that it is much more specific than the first part of the book. See, where the first part of Genesis, chapters 1 to 11, it was all about, think about it, it was all about God dealing with sort of mankind in general, wasn't it? It was about God dealing with humanity as a whole. Well, the second part of the book is much, much narrower. It's about God dealing with one line. It's about God dealing with one family in particular. Now, What's going on there? Why? What on earth is special about this family? Well, that would be getting ahead of ourselves. Because we are not even into chapter 12 yet. So before we get there, tell you what. Let's have a look at this bridge. Let's look at chapter 11. And let's notice a few things together first. And let's think firstly, this is our first point this evening, let's think about God's grace in chaos. God's grace in chaos. Now, uh, it's kind of unbelievable, isn't it? Um, We seem in LCPC to love our genealogies. I can't believe that we are in a, a genealogy Again, but I don't want you to get the wrong impression, okay? It is not that scripture is sort of overflowing with these lists of names. It's not that. It is just that for some reason over the last sort of eight months to a year, we have found ourselves in the books that have the most genealogies, okay? The likes of Ezra and the likes of Genesis and so on. But nevertheless... We do tonight find ourselves in a, another genealogy. So the, the question is, okay, what do we learn from this list of names? And do you want the honest answer? Not all that much. Okay? Not all of them. Now, does that sound a bit sort of dodgy, a bit sort of heretical? What is he saying up there? Well, that's the point. That's the point of the genealogy. It is deliberately sparse. This genealogy that runs from 10 to 26 is deliberately sparse. Because you see, the, the, the aim of the genealogy is, is just to link Shem with who? With Abraham. You see, we're supposed to see Abraham's focus. We are supposed to see this genealogy. And we're almost, almost like we're supposed to sort of skim read it and get to Abraham as quickly as possible. That's why there's not loads of extra information in the genealogy. That's why the, the, the formula of the genealogy is, is abbreviated compared to previous genealogies in, in Genesis. Everything here is about us getting to Terah. Everything is about getting to Abraham. And I guess we see that most clearly in the fact that it's only at the end of the genealogy that we are given any extra information. We see, have a look. The end of the genealogy, there we're told, like the other men of great historical significance in Genesis, that like Adam, that like Noah, Terah, 
has three named sons, Nahor, Han, and the focus of the attention, Abraham, Abraham. So the the genealogy is deliberately sparse, okay. But that said, it's deliberately sparse. But there are a couple of things that we do need to notice from this first part, from this genealogy. For example, think about this. Do you see here the reduction in ages that we've got in this genealogy? The reduction in ages. Do you see that? Because chapter 5 of Genesis, you don't, don't need to look it up just now. But in chapter 5, you can look at it when you go home, there is a mirror genealogy, if you like. Okay? Something very similar to what we've got here. In chapter 5, we've got a list of names before the flood. And what you see when you look at that mirror genealogy in chapter 5, what do you see? You see that the dudes there, they lived for a very, very long time. Because the guys in chapter 5, they lived for, you know, 800 years or 900 years and so on. Now, compare that with what you've got in front of you. You know, it's not 800 years, not 900 years. This, I guess this is, has a, a much more familiar ring to it doesn't it? I mean, look at Nahor right at the end of the genealogy. Do you see how long Nahor lives for? You see it? It's 119 years. Now, that's much nearer what we might come to expect, 119 years. Now, what do we learn from that? Well, yeah, the reduction in lifespan, it's preparing the reader for the enormity of the miracle that God is about to perform in enabling Abraham to have a child at a great age. So there's that. But I think more than that, it also reminds us of the fact that simply sin has got ramifications. Sin has got consequences. Because you see here in, in, in chapter 11, what's happened? Well, yeah, God has renewed the earth, hasn't he, after the flood? You know, mankind here in, in chapter 11, mankind has been given this new beginning. But at the same time, because of his sin, because of man's wickedness, the years of post-Diluvian man, they have been drastically cut short. Sin has got ramifications. And I think, folks, we, we need to think about that. And we need to hold on to the truth of that. Because, you see, that all too often, I think, in a, in a church like ours, in any congregation, perhaps, there is the danger of us falling into a type of accidental antinomianism where it's like almost kind of subconsciously we think, okay, now we're Christians, you know, and we are saved. And so therefore our sin now is not quite as harmless as it used to be. That our sin is not quite as serious as it once was. I say to you tonight, please never think like that. Please see how disgusting and repulsive your sin is. Please see how it destroys, how it offends God. Please see that even if you cannot see it, 
And even if it is affecting other people rather than yourself, the sin always has ramifications. The sin always has consequences. Man's lifespan is reduced here. But I think we should also notice that the, kind of the orderly purposes of God as well. The orderly purposes of God. You see, what we've got, we're coming to the, the, the end of the sort of first part of the book, if you like. And, and what happens is that there's a contrast that's drawn for us here in the first part of Genesis. Because um, Paul read it a moment ago, or he read part of it. Did you see what the previous episode to the genealogy was? It was the, the episode, the Tower of Babel. Everybody knows the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, let me ask you this. What do you think the abiding sort of characteristic of that sort of Tower of Babel experience was? It's the chaos, isn't it? I mean, that's what the Tower of Babel is about. It's about chaos. Man rebels against God. Man's trying to build this city and he's building this tower. And what happens? Humanity is dispersed. Humanity, because of that, is sent into disorder. It's all about chaos. In fact, twice in the section, we are told that man was what? Twice there in the Tower of Babel, we're told that man was scattered. So in every way, that phrase is true, that that man is here because of Babel, because of his sin, he's all over the place. So it's just chaos, right? Tower of Babel. Now, what happens next? What's the What's the contrast that we've got here? What happens? What does God do immediately? What do we read immediately after the Tower of Babel? We've got a genealogy. We've got a genealogy with its abiding characteristic of order. You know, we've got this short and perfectly formed list. There's ten names corresponds exactly perfectly with the ten names of the genealogy in chapter 5. We've got this highly structured genealogy that's pointing us to Abraham, pointing us to where God is, is going to bless and show grace to humanity. Now, I wonder, see the, the message that is, is there for us in that? You see, it's true, isn't it, that sin brings chaos into our lives. Isn't it? I mean, sin, by its very nature, friends, is chaos. It is lawlessness. And sometimes when, when we are walking far from God, say we've backslidden, sometimes we're, we're, we're walking away from God. When that happens, we can feel overwhelmed and we can feel overpowered by the, the, the chaos that, that sin brings. But you see, at times like that, what we must do is repent, yes. But we must also rest in the grace of God. Why? Because if we are walking with God, yes, things are in our lives, they're still going to happen that are unexpected. There's still unanticipated things that are going to happen. But if we are walking with God, we are going to be able to trust in the fact that there is Order. We're going to be able to see and trust in the fact that, that God does have a plan. That like in Genesis chapter 11, that God is acting against this background of the, the chaos 
of sin. And he is now bringing blessing to his people in an orderly and planned way. So God's grace in chaos. Okay, let's consider uh, God's grace in hopelessness. We've seen God's grace in chaos, God's grace in hopelessness. Now, um, I'm sure you all know the situation because we've all been there. We have all had exams, haven't we? You know, whether you have to think back to school or whether you have to think back to university, or even, I suppose, in the workplace, and we have all faced the trauma of exam time. And so we all know the feeling as well, that, that feeling where you're sort of waiting. That's a whole feeling, really. You're, you're waiting outside the exam room, waiting for the sort of door to be opened. You're waiting to go in there. And it's that feeling of you've crammed. And that feeling that you've really sort of studied hard and you've got sort of loads of information stored up there that you're about to sort of pour out onto the page. Well, that's really what we we come to as we move forward into this chapter. Because we've seen that genealogy in 10 to 26. You see, as we move forward a wee bit and see as we narrow down to Terra's actual, you know, his family and his family members from, from verse 27... You see what, what the author does here, what Moses does? He arms us, he gives us lots of, what would you call it, preparatory information. That's what we're getting from sort of 27 onwards to the end of the chapter. Lots and lots of information that we are going to need as we go into chapter 12 and as we go into the, the next section of the book. Now, that's fine, that's great. But what I want us to see tonight how dark and how bleak and how dismal all that preparatory information we are given is. What do I mean? Well, who's mentioned in verse 27? First of all, who have we got? We've got Terah. Now, what do you know about Terah? You know he's Abraham's dad, don't you? What else? Is there anything else we know about Terah? Well, have a look in verse 32, what we told about him. He died at the age of 205. Right, as uh, our American friends would say, let's do the math. What does that mean? Well, it means that Terah was actually alive for a lot of what happens from chapter 12 onwards. So Terah's around... And he's alive for the fact that, that, that Sarah gives birth to Isaac and all that sort of stuff. But here's the thing. He ain't mentioned. So this is Terah's last, last mention of Terah in the whole of the book of Genesis. Why? Because the man was an idolater. That's why. Terah was an ungodly man. A godless man. You see, we read in Joshua chapter 14, that at this point in his life, that Terah worshipped other gods rather than Yahweh. So do you see it? It starts off this bit here. It starts off pretty dark, starts off pretty bleak. We've got Abraham's dad. His very own dad was a pagan. So there's Terah. What else have we got? Who else have we got here? You've got Terah. Then you've got, next one, Haran. So what we told about Haram, well, Haram dies young. 
And he's buried by his dad, which is pretty bleak in itself. But we're also told that he dies young and he leaves children. He leaves Lot. He leaves Milka. So again, pretty dark. So Terah, Haran, things are not looking good. But then we think, okay, there's a sort of ray of light here, isn't there? Because the next person we've got is Abraham and, and Sarai. And we think, great! They get married! It's not that bleak! Until, of course, we realize that, hang on, Abraham is marrying his half-sister here, which, of course, is not cool at all. So you've got that, and then it's the same with, with Nahor and Milcah. You know, Nahor is marrying again, we think it's good, but he marries his niece. Again, I'm sure you would agree, not cool. And you see, all of this bleakness here, all of this darkness, this misery, it all sort of builds up. And there's this crescendo, and it hits the apex. Do you see what the apex is? Look, we're told in verse 20, Sarai was barren. Do you see how that is the end point here? Do you see how that is the the apex of it all? We've had this genealogy. We've had to mention all these sons, all the details of these descendants, and then it comes to this sort of horrible crashing halt. It comes to this den. There's all this momentum, and it's it's building up to Abraham, and it's, it's looking positive, and then suddenly we are told, Abraham cannot have any children. This is, do you see it? It is an apparently hopeless, hopeless situation. But folks, what I want us to see tonight, and what would have been abundantly clear if you think about it to the the people of Israel, you know, the very first readers of this, what we must see is how apparent hopelessness is simply no obstacle to God's grace. It is no obstacle to God's grace. You see that these first readers of Genesis, you know, they're hearing from Moses. They would have known that, yeah, things look bleak here, and wow, they look bleak, but God was just about to act. They would have known that, yeah, Terah was a pagan, but from him Abraham would come. They would know that, yeah, okay, Nahor's marrying his niece, but God's going to use that. From them, who would come? Rebecca. You see it? That, yeah, Sarai is barren, but what's going to happen from her is going to come. The, the, the promised child, Isaac, is going to come. That things actually were not hopeless after all. And I hope you see tonight, really, the encouragement that should be there for us that, you know, if, if we are facing a situation tonight that seems like it is a dead end, that in God, things are never lost. And if we are facing something that seems hopeless, whether that be, you know, despair mentally, or physically, or, or, or spiritually, they are not hopeless after all. Now, that does not mean, of course, that we are always going to receive the healing that we pray for. 
But it does mean that there is no situation that exists in your life, no situation whatsoever, that God cannot bring you through in love. In fact, in joy. You know, in Genesis chapter 11, things just seem dead. It just comes to this crashing halt. But God was going to work. And he was going to work to bless. So there's God's grace in chaos. And there is God's grace in hopelessness. Thirdly, let's think about God's grace in repeat. God's grace in repeat. So if you have been up to our house Uh, The manse up in Woodford Green, you will know that there are LPs kicking about in various rooms. You will know that uh, if my wife and I uh, want to listen to music, that very often we will listen to vinyl. And if you know anything about vinyl, you will also know that with vinyl come many, many problems. And uh, I can tell you, I don't know how many times I've sort of moved out of the room where we were listening to music. I will walk a few steps and then that vinyl will stick and I will hear the same bit of music round and round and round and round. Well, you see, that's really what we have in the, f- the first part of Genesis. Remember we're talking about verse, chapters 1 to 11. You see, in that first section of Genesis, we have got a repeated, repeated picture that happens and then happens again. Think about it. You've got the sin of Adam followed by the judgment of God followed by what? Followed by God's grace and the promise, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. Then what have you got? Then you've got Cain. Don't you after Adam? Now what happens with Cain? Remember? Sin. Cain sins. There's the judgment of God. What is that followed by? It is followed by God's grace and how he marks to protect Cain. Okay, we're seeing a pattern. Then what have we got? Well, then we've got Noah, haven't we? And we've got sin, the sin of humanity, followed by the judgment of God, followed by what? Followed by the grace of God through Noah to the rest of mankind. And guess what? Here... As we come to the end of the first part of the book, in chapter 11, what have we got? We've got the very, very same repeated pattern. We've got the sin of Babel. We've got the judgment of God. And then we have got grace. Grace in this movement toward Abraham through whom God is going to bless his people. So, you see it? There's a repeated picture. There is a repeated picture all the way through the first part of Genesis. And then the second part, what have we got? We've got this narrowing down to the family line that we started our sermon with. Now, here's the thing, last thing. What I want you to see, what we need to see, is that both of these things, part one... And it's repetition. Part two and the family line. Both things anticipate the redemptive work of God in Jesus Christ. Do you see it? The repetition of God 
working in Greece into sin. That anticipates the great work of Jesus Christ against sin at Calvary's Hill. And this family line, well, this family line, think about it, it moves forward, doesn't it? You've got genealogy, you've got Abraham, you've got Isaac, and you've got Jacob, and you've got Joseph, and that moves forward. And it anticipates this great royal ruler in this family line that God is going to use to what? To destroy sin. Do you see it? We're on this bridge tonight. And everywhere we look in Genesis, everywhere we look, we see the beginnings of God's redemptive plan in Jesus Christ. It is tremendous. It's marvellous. And do you see what that anticipated Messiah is? Do you see what the Christ is? He himself is bridge, isn't he? He is the one, because of what he has done for us, the one who connects man and God. He's the bridge. He's the one who crosses that great gaping divide of sin. So friends, as we study Genesis together over the next few months, let's pray that God grants us an insight into it. Let's pray that God grants us understanding. And may we all through it see his greatness and his his goodness and his glory, the glory of a God who has acted into sin and he has provided with with lasting and, and sure and, yes, eternal hope. Let's pray.